The reading can be found on page 1112 of the Pew Bibles and is taken from Acts chapter 16, beginning at verse 16. Once, when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. This girl followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God, who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so troubled that he turned round and said to the Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the Spirit left her. When the owners of the slave girl realised that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself! We are all here! The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his family were baptised. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, Release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. 
But Paul said to the officers, They beat us publicly, without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens, and threw us into prison. And now, do they want to get rid of us quietly? No. Let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates. And when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and encouraged them. Then they left. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you very much. I realise that's a long passage. There we are. You can all get the full frontal now. You can all laugh. Yeah, thank you. Yes, mirth was the overriding impression as you came in. Uh, so thank you for that. But it's very good to be here. And before we start, actually, can I uh, really thank you uh, for all your, your good wishes, your prayers, uh, and your attendance uh, on June the 29th at my ordination and uh, afterwards at our house. When, uh, for those of you who arrived just for the tea... Uh, in the afternoon, I was probably not fully robed. There is a reason for that. Um, and the person that can tell you, Nick Bamber, isn't here this morning. Uh, but so you must ask him why I wasn't robed when you arrived. But anyway, thank you ever so much uh, for all uh, that you have done for me. Um, you'll also possibly have seen something in the Surrey ad, uh, which was the Knight Frank press office going wild while I was on holiday. Uh, telling people that I lived in Wanish uh, and was serving Wanish Church. Um, two inaccuracies there, I don't live in Wanish, um, and it's actually Wanish and Blackheath. But apart from that, I think it was, it was fine. Anyway, let's just pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and we want to thank you that you are at work in each one of our lives. And we pray that as we look at this passage, you may yet again set our hearts on fire with love for you. In your name. Amen. So we do indeed come to our passage. You may uh, find it helpful to have it in front of you. It is a fascinating story. It's a pity we don't have more time, uh, really, but it is a a family communion in a holiday period, so we're going to try and uh, be reasonably uh, succinct. Um, But it's it's a passage where we're just going to look at the sort of three main uh, key players with my overriding theme, which I used to have in the back of my car, it was a tear fund uh, sort of plastic sticker, and it said, God's love, tear fund, God's love in action. Which I thought was just a brilliant, absolutely brilliant um, sort of uh, mission statement, or whatever you, you want to call it. Um, of course, they changed it to God's concern in a world of need, which is just as good, except that you can have concern without actually having action. So, for me, it kind of watered down the point. So, today is God's love in action. And Acts is an exciting book. I hope you've, you've got the feel of that as we've been going through some of Acts. Acts 10, if you remember, 
Uh, well, the whole of Acts, actually. Acts is the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. It's the commissioning of the disciples. It's them speaking on behalf of God. Then we reach Acts 10, and Peter and Cornelius meet. Do you remember that, uh, that sermon that we had? And uh, the, the mission to the Jews, the explanation of the gospel to the Jews, becomes the explanation of the gospel to the Gentiles as well. It's a complete paradigm shift in the mission of the church. And then uh, we meet the disciples out on their journeys, uh, and this is the second journey, as Colin told us last week, of Paul, his second missionary journey. And it's so exciting, because no longer is he uh, contained in that area of the world. He crosses the sea and comes into Europe for the first time. Praise God, the gospel is on the move. And it's inspiring the disciples to uh, speak uh, of God. Now, wherever you get an increase in the, in the interest, the, the talk of God, you're going to get opposition as well. And this is something that the passage uh, deals with this morning. And the best time to um, put down any opposition is when something is very small. And this is a small church. We know that because at the beginning of the passage it says they're going out to a place of prayer. Uh, and again, as Colin said last week, they were going to the river to meet the women. Now, the, the rules at the time said that if you had ten men in your church, you could build a synagogue as a place, uh, a temple, to go and uh, to worship God. So this hasn't yet reached ten men in the congregation. So this is a small church, but Paul and Silas seek them out. And as they do so, the first character comes on the scene. And this is a slave woman uh, owned by a group of people, presumably men, but we're not actually told that. And this woman is announcing them as servants, or in the NRSV, which I have, slaves of the Most High God. Jesus said it is what comes out of a man uh, or a person that defines them. And this woman was defined by what she did. She spoke of the future. She gave utterance to the future. And she made money for her owners. It was what was inside that was important. It was what was inside that made that person what they were. Uh, And it struck me again this week how important it is of what is inside. I was struck by the the sad death, obviously, of Robin Williams, a really funny guy on the surface. But his humour came from what was inside. And one of the reports said, a man of demons. So much turmoil in the middle of his life that we could not see. We just saw the surface. But actually, underneath was this huge turmoil. And then, of course, the further sad news, was it a couple of days ago, what what is inside Cliff Richard's life? And I really pray that he is as clean as the image he portrays. And we will see, and I think we should pray for that situation. The press are already making it uh, a Christian um, episode And it reminds me of two images, one good and one bad. The bad one, um, I have a brother, 
and he's an environmental health officer. And quite early in his career, he, uh, someone brought into him a loaf of bread, white bread, nice-looking bread, uh, and he said, so what's the, what's the problem? She said, it's a sliced loaf. Yes, I can see that. I'm quite intelligent. Uh, it's a sliced loaf. And she said, well, take off a couple of slices. And he did, and he said, well, that's still bread. It's still sliced. And she said, yes, keep going. And then there was this little dot in the middle of the bread, and the dot got bigger and bigger. And he said, that's odd. What's that dot? And she said, no, that's why I'm here. You're to tell me that. So he took it down to Westminster Council, where he was working, and they took the bread away from all the dots, and they put the dots together, and if the children had still been in, I'd ask them what it was. It was a rat. A sliced rat, in the middle of the sliced white loaf. Brilliant. Brilliant disguise. Sadly dead, but brilliant disguise. You never know what's inside, do you? It looked fantastic, but inside it was rotten to the core. Now, I don't know if sticks of rock are today what they used to be. They probably only print the name on the the outside. But previously, when you snapped a piece of rock, at whatever point, you got exactly the same message running all the way through the piece of rock. So the first question I want to ask this morning is, what are we? Are we hollow in the middle? Are we carrying something inside which perhaps we shouldn't? Or does our principle run right the way through us? Are we covering something up? You see, we are all possessed. This woman was possessed. And actually, we're all possessed by something. Marion uh, says that to me often when I do something. What possessed you? And it's a good question. What did possess me? We are all possessed by something. Ephesians 6 says, We struggle not against flesh and blood, but against the powers of this dark world and spiritual forces of evil. And so we have this woman who is possessed by an evil spirit, And then enter our second group in the story, the people that own her. And this woman is following Paul and she's shouting out that these are slaves of the Most High and in the end, Paul just cracks. They say, enough of this. You may well be telling the truth, but get out of her. And he casts the spirit out. And at once, the woman is released from the power of the evil spirit. Our Uh, our war, our life is against dark and spiritual forces. And Paul casts it out and releases the woman. And at the same time, that group of owners are equally released. No longer do they have the power to earn money. They are released from that. And at first, we might sympathise with them. They've just lost their livelihood. How would we like it if that happened to us? But we need to look at their response. And their response comes in verse 20. Because they take Paul and Silas to the forum, the marketplace, which is where the authorities were gathered. And do they mention the problem that they have? We've just lost our livelihood? No, they don't. They say, these are outsiders, these are Jews. It was almost a a swear word that they're using. 
These are a lesser people who are inciting the crowd against Rome. They should be punished. You see, at the core of this woman was an evil spirit. And at the core of this group of people was the the need to make money. That was what inspired them. That's what drove them. That was their life and interest. Their own self-interest. They had no respect for the woman. They had no interest in what she was saying to the other people, actually. They certainly had no respect for Paul and Silas. They only had respect for the money that they could earn. So to our second question, which Jesus poses in in Matthew 6. uh, Where is your treasure? Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So are we hollow or do we have principles? And what is it in the core? What does make us tick? I suspect, I could almost guarantee that you're just like me. You may say one thing, but actually do another. You may like to portray one image, but actually inside, we're very different people. There are gaps in that stick of rock. Sometimes quite big gaps. And the love of God does not flow all the way through us. So, enter Paul and Silas. And I made a point at the beginning of saying that this woman was calling them servants of the Most High. Isn't it extraordinary that throughout the Bible we we see uh, the Christian disciples and the apostles meeting people and they're confused about who Jesus is. When the presence of Jesus meets an evil spirit, they are in absolutely no doubt who Jesus is. They know every single time he is God and he is of the Most High. And that is what this woman is calling of uh, Paul and Silas. They are slaves. Slaves were possessed. They were owned by someone else. Paul and Silas are owned by God. And so they're, f- they're, they're put together in this, uh, this forum. They're, they incite the crowd. The crowd are against them, so they're flogged. And then they're thrown in prison. And the jailer throws them into the innermost part of the prison, in the deepest recesses. He puts them in stocks to make absolutely sure they're not going to get out. Why does he do that? Acts 12:29. Peter, you remember, his shackles fell off. He walked out. The guards were executed because they hadn't kept them in place. So not surprisingly, this jailer is a bit nervous. And so he puts them right on the inside. Paul and Silas, having been flogged, physically tired, worn out, and probably bruised, battered, bleeding, they're singing and they're praying to God. Odd. It's midnight. The other prisoners are perfectly happy, apparently, that they're still singing and praying to God. Odd. The jailer then wakes as there is this huge earthquake. The doors open, the shackles come off, and he thinks, I'm gone, I'm a done, I'm done for. I am a goner. So he makes to kill himself, and Paul says, don't do that. So the jailer asks, in fear and trembling, I would think, what must I do to be saved? 
Now, does he mean from the authorities? How am I going to face them when this has happened? I couldn't even look after you. I think it's a bit more than that, because you look at Paul's response in verse 31. He says, believe in the Lord Jesus. Paul was perfectly clear what the question was. What must I do to be saved? Answer, believe in the Lord Jesus. And his, uh, the jailer's family are then touched by that same spirit and are converted as well. And we get this wonderful illustration. Paul, through Jesus Christ, washes the sins of the jailer and his family. The jailer turns and washes the blood from Paul. Paul releases the prisoner, the, the jailer from this inner core, this problem, this possession within. And so the jailer releases Paul to join with his family overnight. There, I mean, they are extraordinary scenes. So the third question, how is it possible for us to change, to be possessed, run through with God, to have our very core as, uh, as God? And I think there are, f- there are four things here, and it's going to be very easy because they're all in one word. Because to Paul and Silas, God came. To the jailer, God came. To that young woman, God came. Came, see, see, God cares. He is caring and compassionate. He does not look down from heaven and let us be. He inspires, he loves, he probably weeps over his people. He cares. You have to inspire people in order to care. Those doctors going out to treat the Ebola um, sufferers. Extraordinary um, selfless act because they care. And God cares for these individuals. But not only that, and this is where the tear fund poster comes in, it turns to action. A for action. Because God doesn't just look and feel sorry for them. He gets involved. He intervenes. He releases Paul. He releases uh, the, the slave woman. He releases the jailer. He did it himself. He took action and he restored them. Thirdly, the M, it's miraculous. We have, Paul had, a God of the miraculous. The timing of the earthquake could have been completely natural, of course. But what a time for it to happen. What a time for everyone's shackles to remove at the same time, for all the doors to spring open at the same time. The Bible is full of occasions when we see natural events being uh, controlled by the supernatural hand of God. And Paul's God was a God of the miraculous. And finally, Paul's God was a God who was effective. His timing was perfect. The restoration of the jailer was complete. His salvation was total. God's mastery over creation was absolute. His power came. God came. And for us, therefore, how does that leave us? Well, Hebrews 13.8 says that God is the same yesterday, today and forever. We have the same God that Paul had. God cares for each one of us. He is compassionate 
for each one of us. He wants to act on behalf of each one of us. He wants to be the miracle in your life, not only converting you, saving you, but then leading you and guiding you because he is effective. In modern parlance, if we were to to put it in these terms, God is what he says on the tin. God's tin is all about salvation, restoring people to a proper relationship with God. He does exactly what he says on the tin. He cares, he's active, he's miraculous, he's effective. So do we want this as our core? Do we want God as our core? No more facade, but built on the love of Jesus Christ. And so we come to our communion service, which is why Colin has been uh, focusing on the cross. This is the ultimate reminder of what we've been saying this morning. The cross, that symbol of care and compassion, when God so loved the world that he did not stay where he could have stayed, but he was active on our behalf and came to give up his life. That in the miraculous way of his perfection and his giving, that we may be saved. Unbelievable. And he's done it all for me and for each one of us here. Unbelievable. So what do we have at our core? Do we want God at our core? What do we want inside us? Where do we place our treasure? Do we believe in the God of the Bible, the unbelievable God. Let's just bow our heads and pray. I'm reminded of the words of a song by Matt Redman. They lead us to lay down our life and ask God in. Jesus Christ, I think upon your sacrifice You became nothing, poured out to death. Many times I've wondered at your gift of life. And I'm in that place once again. Once again I look upon the cross where you died. I'm humbled by your mercy and I'm broken inside. Once again I thank you. Once again I lay down my life. Oh, Heavenly Father, help us, each one this morning, to lay down our life because you laid down yours for us. You came because of your love. You came to do something. You came to miraculously heal. You came to be effective in our salvation. Heavenly Father, we thank you and lay our lives before you now in simple adoration and praise.
change us. Work your, your miracle in us this morning, we ask. In the name of your Son, our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen.